Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. And you should have received an outline uh, on your way in, those of you that are here in person. We have those outlines uh, near the, the main doors on a table for you. And those who are watching live stream, we have a button, an outline button, beside or underneath your media player. And we'll be referring to that outline in just, just a bit. As we've now completed our series in the book of Revelation, and we're entering the Christmas season, here's our message schedule coming up. Today and next week, we'll have two Christmas-related messages. And then on the 27th, we'll have a message to begin the new year. And then on the first Sunday in January, we'll start a series in the book of Proverbs. So today is the first of two messages related to Christmas. But we want to explain what is accomplished as a result of Christ having come at what we celebrate in Christmas. Through the book of Romans, in particular Romans chapter 3, rather than focusing on the birth narratives in the Gospel of Matthew or, or Luke. So I've asked you to turn to the book of Romans because it tells us in detail why it is that God became man in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. The Gospels tell us what happened. They tell us of the events of the life of the Lord, his birth, and then his death and resurrection. But Romans explains the full significance of those events. Now you may, may recall that your New Testament opens with an angel announcing to Joseph the miracle of Mary's virgin conception. And then Joseph is told this by the angel. You are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So that's the purpose for his coming, to save his people from their sins. And in fact, that's why he is given that name Jesus, because that name Jesus means God saves. And so the next two weeks, we're going to look at what the Bible says about the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us, that he will indeed save his people from their sins. So let's bow together and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you that we are here or that we are able to join in by, by live stream. These are, these are gifts from you. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son. He is indeed the present that we cherish most at this Christmas season and every season. We thank you for the profound difference that he has made in the lives of those of us who have come to you through him by believing in who he is and what he has done for us. And so, Lord, we want to proclaim that message, the good news of the gospel, have a good grasp of what it means, why it is that Jesus came, how it is that he saves his people from their sins. So help us today as we look at your word to learn, apply, and then go with the gospel message to those who need it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I have in that outline, the first point is that Christ came to do four things. The first of which is to provide our righteousness. Christ came to provide our righteousness. Now, the theme of the book of Romans is found in the first chapter in this famous verse. It says in verse 16 of chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now, how is it that the gospel brings salvation? 
to everyone who believes. Well, the next verse, verse 17 of chapter 1, says this, because for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Those two verses, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, are the, the theme of the book, the gospel that makes known, reveals the righteousness of God. But why is it that we need the righteousness of God to be made known, to be revealed to us? That's answered starting in the next verse after that theme. The theme is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and then the explanation for why we need that righteousness of God starts in verse 18 of chapter 1. It says this, for, again, explaining, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And then from that point on in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3, the case is made that everyone is ungodly and wicked, no matter one's ethnicity, whether Jew or Gentile, whether one has the written law of God or not, because we're told in those passages no one keeps the law they have, whether the law of conscience by those who don't have the written law or the written law given in the first part of your Bible, everyone has failed, everyone has sinned. And so in chapter 3, Take a look at verse 9. After all of that, Paul, who wrote Romans, asks, what shall we conclude then? After all that's been said about human sinfulness, from chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 8, now he says, okay, what do you think of that? What do we do with that? What do we, con what do we conclude from that? What can we say? And he says in verse 9, asks, do we have any advantage? That is, do we Jews, Paul was a Jew, do we Jews who were given God's law have any advantage over those who were not? Not at all, he goes on to say. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And then beginning in verse 10 all the way down to verse 18 of chapter 3, you have a 14-count indictment against us. A 14-count indictment against every one of us. Three times from verses 10 through 18, the word all, as in all people, is used. And when it describes our relationship to righteousness, it uses the word none four times. And it underscores it twice with the words not even one. And this indictment for those nine verses from verses 10 through 18 offers, refers to different parts of our anatomy, our throats, our tongues, our mouths, our lips, our feet, and our eyes. The whole person is sinful, it's telling us. And these 14 counts fall into three categories of our character, of our speech, of our behavior. Verse 10 starts with, it is written. And then notice that all of the following statements, all the way down through verse 18, they're all in quotation marks. That's because those things are written in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And these are all quotes from there about us, about all of humanity and our problem. 
And so verse 10 says, as it is written, there is no one who understands, there's no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one righteous, not even one. Now by the time you get through all of that, you're completely depressed. <laughs> you're completely depressed and, and it's hopeless because of how bad humanity is. And not just humanity in the abstract, how bad we are. How sinful we are. So how can we ever be right with God? And that was Paul's purpose in making us depressed through all of that was to cause us to then ask the question, okay, well now what? If it's really that bad, and it is, then how indeed can we have a relationship with God? And verse 20 of chapter 3 tells us how it does not happen. Verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So you have in the first part of the Bible, the law, this list of rules and, and regulations. But Paul says, no one's going to be made righteous by that because everybody fits this, this profile that I've just laid out in verses 10 through 18. And that means that nobody can actually keep the law. So we've got a list of rules in God's laws, in God's law that we're supposed to keep, but none of us does and none of us can because of our sin. So in the words of Glum in the cartoon when I was a kid, Gulliver's Travels, we're doomed. We'll never make it. And just then, when all seems lost, we read these blessed words in verse 21. But now, there's all that, and all that's true. From chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way through chapter 3 and verse 20. And when you get done with that, you say, it's hopeless, we're doomed, we're never going to make it. And then, thanks be to God, there is verse 21. But now, but now, God has intervened to provide for us what we desperately need. And what we desperately need is something from outside of ourselves to make us, remake us into what we were originally made to be. And so verse 21 says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Now notice those words, the righteousness of God has been made known. You've seen those already. Back in chapter 1, we'll put them on the screen again. Chapter 1 and verse 17, in the gospel, notice the righteousness of God is revealed. In chapter 3 and verse 21, it says the same thing. The righteousness of God is made known or is, is revealed. So in our passage now, it's picking up where it started. It started in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is the theme of the entire book of Romans. And then there's this important, necessary interlude after giving the theme to show how it is that everybody needs what's going to be presented in this book the gospel. Because everybody, Jew and Gentile, no matter who we are, are under sin. We cannot keep God's law. Therefore, we cannot be right with God 
have God's righteousness be related to him by anything we do. So now in chapter 3 and verse 21, we're picking up where it started. The righteousness of God does not come from keeping the law because none of us can. But verse 22 tells us how it does come. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. So Christ came to provide our righteousness, a righteousness we don't have ourselves, and to, I say in the outline, fulfill God's promise. Verse 21 again, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. Now this might seem at first glance to be a contradiction in verse 21. Because it says this righteousness does not come by the law, but then also says that the law testifies to it. So it doesn't come by the law, but the law and the prophets testify to it. So how, how can that be? Well, when it says our righteousness in Christ comes apart from the law, it's saying that it comes apart from the law of Moses given beginning in the second book of your Bible, the book of Exodus, Many of you will remember that narrative. You'll remember that story. And so the uh, children of Israel are, have exit, exited Egypt. That's the name of the book, Exodus. They've come out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness, and God forms them as a nation by giving them his law. Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai, and God begins to give the law. That law is going to be expanded with many other rules and regulations later, and we find those in the subsequent books uh, called the books of Moses in uh, Leviticus and Numbers and, and Deuteronomy. But Moses, so that's the, that's the law apart from the law. It's apart from that law and all of those rules that God gave to Moses. But Moses wrote not only Exodus and then three books that follow, but he wrote the first book of your Bible. He wrote Genesis, and that's before God gave the formal, what we call the law of Moses. And Genesis is included in the, in the books that are in the category of law, even though it does not contain the rules and the regulations. It's called as part of the, the law and the law books, but it doesn't contain, the law didn't come until the law of Moses came in the second book. So that phrase now at the end of verse 21, the law and the prophets is shorthand for the entire first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And it's saying the whole Old Testament points to, indicated, what has happened now in Jesus Christ. You see it used that way, law and the prophets, in Luke chapter 24, it says this, beginning with Moses including Genesis, where you don't have the law of Moses, but beginning with Moses, the books that Moses wrote that are in that category of law, beginning with the law and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. Notice, concerning himself. So the entirety of the scriptures is the law and the prophets. It's shorthand for the whole Old Testament. So when it says the law and the prophets at the end of verse 21, it means they testify to, they point to this righteousness from God. It's saying that it's promised, anticipated, predicted in the Old Testament. 
In fact, in that theme verse back in chapter 1, it already referred to this from the Old Testament. Again, chapter 1 and verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, but then notice, just as it is written. Written where? Written in the first part of your Bible. And written specifically in one of the prophets. The righteous will live by faith. And that is a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. And then in the next chapter of Romans, chapter 4, the great illustration that God's righteousness comes apart from the law of Moses is Abraham. So when you read through chapter 4, you find that the illustration of Abraham is used. Abraham who lived 500 years before Moses and the law. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What, shall we, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Verse 3, what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now notice that phrase in verse 3. Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. It's in quotes. So it's quoting scripture from somewhere, and the somewhere is Genesis. That book written by Moses, but before the law of Moses was given, and that's where we're introduced to Abraham, and in chapter 15 and verse 6 of Genesis. It's there that it says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as, as righteousness. So on the one hand, our righteousness does not come from keeping the law of Moses. But on the other hand, the section of the Bible where the law is found anticipates and predicts this coming righteousness, as does the prophets. So Christ came to provide our righteousness, fulfill God's promise of this righteousness, and I say in the outline, to supply our need. So we've seen that the gospel, centered on Jesus, makes known a, a righteousness that we need because we're not righteous. So this is going to have to come from outside of us, from some other source. If we're going to have this righteousness, you're not going to generate it, I'm not going to generate it, we're not going to be able to produce it. It's going to have to come from outside of us, from an outside source, and that source is God himself. When it says in verses 21 and 22, and then also back in chapter 1 and verse 17, the righteousness of God, you see that phrase, the righteousness of God, it should be understood as the righteousness from God. Now in Greek, that's called a genitive of source, if anybody cares, <laughs> meaning that the source of this righteousness is God. It's His, and it comes to us from Him. The Bible says of those who try to attain righteousness by their own deeds, the Bible says this in Romans chapter 10, since they did not know the righteousness of God, that is the righteousness that comes from God, and they sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, as you know, he wrote 
12 other books in your New Testament. One of those is Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 3, he's recounting his, his own journey toward Jesus Christ. And he recounts there that he had an impeccable spiritual resume, that he was a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee among the Pharisees, that he was well-trained in the law. But he says this in Philippians chapter 3, after recounting his spiritual resume, I consider my past works garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now notice, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So I, Paul, if, I mean, if anybody could achieve righteousness by keeping the law, it would have been this guy. And he recounts all of the things that he did, all of his credentials, and yet none of that mattered. What matters is the righteousness that can only come from God on the basis of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we need this righteousness. This is a righteousness that from outside of ourselves, it comes from God. But how is it applied to me? How is it applied to, to you? Verse 24 says this. We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are justified freely by His grace. Now when it says justified, and we've been seeing this word righteousness of God, those words justified, just, right, righteousness, and justification, every time you see all of those, those are from the same root word. When it says justified, then, it means this, to, that we are declared righteous. When verse 24 says we're justified, this is how we get this righteousness from outside of ourselves. Something we don't have. God declares us righteous even when we're not. This word that's translated justified is a courtroom term where God, the righteous judge, pronounces us not only not guilty, but gives us a completely clean record. Now, it's important to understand how it is that God does that. Because many people might read that, might hear that, and say, yeah, okay, good. You know, God just kind of called an, an audible <laughs> there. God just, you know, when you played hide-and-seek, and, you know, it was fine. You know, I, I haven't played in a long time, but, you know, I think it was kind of when you're thrown in the towel, we can't find everybody, and you would say, Ollie, whatever it was. And that just meant everybody's off the hook, I think. So I don't have to find you. You can come out from hiding. And that's the way we think of it sometimes with regard to God, that God just sort of pronounces that. Y'all can come out from hiding now. Everything's good. I've just sort of, on no basis other than my own whim, decided that everything, no, no, no. We're going to see it's not that. As a matter of fact, we're going to see God actually cannot do it just on a whim. There must be a basis, there must be a righteous basis upon which God declares us to be righteous. Now, how does that happen? It comes by the work of Christ. 
his perfect life, culminating on the cross in obedience to God the Father, and that's counted to us as if we are as righteous as Jesus is. Let me just say that again. That's counted to us as if we are as righteous as Jesus. The righteousness that the gospel makes known and that we all need because we are not righteous has come from outside of us and God supplies that need through the righteousness of Christ that's counted to us, imputed to us when we believe in Him. In today's scripture reading, Pastor Larry read from chapter 4. Verse 5 says this, To anyone who does not work but trusts God, who justifies, now notice, justifies, remember what that means? Declares righteous. God declares righteous, notice verse 5, the ungodly. It's not you're righteous because you really live up to the standard. No, you're ungodly. All of us are. But we trust the one, God, who justifies the ungodly. And when you do that, your faith is credited as righteousness. Just like it was for Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That word credited means to be applied to your account, imputed to you. So when we believe in Jesus and who he is and what he has done in his life and in his death, God counts the righteous life of Jesus to me, to you. We needed Christ to supply our need for righteousness because, I say in the outline, we cannot work for it. We need it to come from God because we can't do it. The law of Moses never made anyone righteous because no one could keep the law of Moses. You saw that back in verse 20 of chapter 3, that no one will be justified in the sight of God by keeping the law. No, it's through the law that we became conscious of sin, verse 20 said. So nobody was ever made righteous by keeping the law. Everyone failed. And when we talk about the law of Moses, you go through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you'll find, if you were to count them all, 613 requirements and prohibitions. We think of the law of Moses, we think of the top 10, <laughs> the Ten Commandments. But no, there were a total of 613. Nobody kept them. Now, reasoning from the greater to the lesser, if righteousness could not come by the best list ever given, then righteousness, friends, is not going to come by some list you put together or some denomination puts together and says, here's the way that you get to God. We've got a different list, so we're not trying to keep the law of Moses. That's how they escape the charge of legalism. We're not keeping the law of Moses. We're keeping a different law. You're kidding me. You're going to replace the law of Moses with something else as if that's better and somehow we're going to be able to keep that and be righteous before God? Unless you think I exaggerate. This is precisely what has been done throughout church history. The Roman Catholic Church, I'm going to mention a few, but the Roman Catholic Church is based upon this idea. This idea that 
we're not keeping the law of Moses, but we have a different list of rules for you to keep. And you must keep those rules. You have holy days of, of obligation. If you fail to attend church, do what's required on those holy days of obligation, that's a, that's a mortal sin. We've got categories of sin, venial sins and mortal sins. If you die with a mortal sin to your account, then you go to hell. That's why if you are dying as a Roman Catholic, it's necessary for a priest to rush in and administer what? Last rites. Because that's the way to absolve you of the punishment for a potential mortal sin on your account. The Council of Trent is one of many Roman Catholic councils, this one from the 16th century. You say, that was a long time ago. Surely they don't still believe what they said 500 years ago. No, still in effect. <laughs> Here's just one of the things that it says. If anyone saith that the good works of the one that is justified does not truly merit increase of grace, eternal life, and the attainment of that eternal life, now, you know, those old, the way those are worded that can get a little, you can get lost in the language. Let me just slow it down a bit. If anyone says that the good works of the one that is justified does not merit increase of grace, that is, the stuff you do, the works you do, earns, merits an increase of the grace of God toward you. It merits an increase of grace. It merits eternal life and the attainment, ultimately, of that eternal life. If anyone says that, that that's not true, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. Let them be damned. That's what that's saying. And there are many, many, many such statements about how we are made right with God. And it's through what we do. And there are these pronouncements. If you don't believe it's through what we do, then you're anathema. Cursed, damned. Back in 1992, a group of religious leaders got together, evangelicals and Roman Catholics. They put together a document called, you can Google this, Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Evangelicals and Catholics Together. The idea was to try to bring the two together. Let's work out our differences here. I still remember vividly when that came out. It made uh, such a splash. Some of the evangelicals involved in that were the late Charles Colson, the late Bill Bright, some of you know that name because he founded Campus Crusade for, for Christ, now called Crew. But Colson and Bill Bright and others had this desire to bring evangelicals and Catholics together. They formed this list of affirmations from both sides that we agree on these things. The very first one, the very first one said this, we affirm that salvation is by grace, through faith, because of Christ. We affirm that salvation is by grace, through faith, because of Christ. And the Roman Catholic signatories to that said, yeah, that's what we believe. By the way, that's absolutely true. Roman Catholicism believes that sentence. We believe that salvation is by grace, through faith, because of Christ. Here's what it doesn't say that it's really supposed to say. <laughs> it's supposed to add this one word. 
We believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. You see, leaving out that word is crucially important. It's what the entire Protestant Reformation was about. Sola, you remember that? Sola fide, sola, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. And so many today try to add to the gospel and how it is that we attain righteousness. And the Bible makes clear there is nothing you can do. It's got to come from outside of yourself. I grew up in a church. So it's not just our Pentecostal friends or our Roman Catholic friends. It's my Pentecostal church that I grew up in. Taught that you had to maintain your salvation. You had to work in order to keep it. You could lose it. And as a, as a young man reading the Bible and being confused about this, and also I went to a, a Baptist high school. So I got this Baptist high school telling me, no, that's wrong, and I got my Pentecostal church telling me. So I was wigged out. I was confused and explains all the neuroses that I have, that I have to this day. And so I went to my pastor, and I said to him, so what do you have to do? Our church teaches you can lose your salvation. What do you have to do to lose your salvation? And as a teenager, you know, I committed all kinds of sins, and I was worried about my own salvation. If I died, where would I be? And I said to him, you know, we all sin regularly, and he said this to me. He said, speak for yourself. I'm quoting I have not sinned a willful sin in 35 years. Now, do you see what he's done there? He's redefined what sin is. Sin is, notice, a willful sin. We're going to see in a bit, we're going to be reminded of how, how broad the Bible defines sin so that you couldn't keep track of it if you wanted to. But that's what he believed and that's what he thought. All world religions except biblical Christianity create for you a ladder for you to climb your way to God. It is only in the gospel of grace in biblical Christianity that God comes to us and that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's why verse 24 says it's given freely by his grace. It's free, that is. It's not paid for. It's not earned. It can't be worked for. Freely by His grace, grace by definition is unmerited and unearned. And this passage then throughout has to emphasize that it's received by faith, by believing, to eliminate anything that you do in order to attain this righteousness. Verse 22, it's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, you all have heard me say many times over the years that when you see in your Bible faith and believe, or faith and belief, those are the same Greek word. So here in verse 22, you've got faith, and then you've got a different form of the same word, believe, through faith to all who believe. Both used in the same verse. It's to intensely emphasize that it's by believing, that it's not by what we do, but rather by what Christ has done. His righteousness is activated. He only imputes, credits 
Christ righteousness outside of you to you that only happens for those who believe. But we're going to see in a bit, it also happens for all of those who believe. Verse 25 says, Christ's work is received by faith. And at the end of verse 26, it says that God justifies, declares righteous, those who have faith in Jesus. So how do I get it? How does it become credited to me, imputed to me? I believe in who Jesus is and what he's done. And believing is not a work. Sometimes people will then say, well, yeah, but believing is doing something. So believing is a work. No, the book of James contrasts, remember that? Faith and works. Believing and works. So for James, those are, those are not the same thing. Works involve effort. But believing, faith, is the means by which, with empty hands, we simply receive the work that another has done for us. In chapter 4, in verse 16, it says this. The promise, chapter 4, verse 16, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. You see that? The promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace. In other words, if it's not by faith, it can't be by grace, because otherwise that means you're doing something. You're working, and that's contrary to the very definition of grace. When the end of verse 24 says we're justified by the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, Here's what redemption is. It's a word taken from the slave market. And the Bible uses this word to refer to release from guilt with its liability to, to judgment. We're delivered from slavery to sin because Christ in his death paid the ransom for us. So we can't earn, we can't work for God's righteousness. And I say in the outline, we all require it. We all require it. The end of verse 22, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Verse 23, for famously all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, all have fallen short of the standard of God's holy character. God's glory is his character. That means that we were made in his image, to reflect God back to God in his character. Sin has broken that so that we fail to do that. In, now hear this, in our desires, in our thoughts, in our words, and in our deeds. So back to my Pentecostal pastor saying, I've not sinned in 35 years. Really? In your desires? In your thoughts? In your words? I mean, I'll grant you, you haven't killed anybody. I'll grant you, you haven't robbed a bank. But when you define sin the way the Bible does, as falling short of the character of God. Then friends, we are so immensely sinful that we can't quantify our sin. And therefore, we have no ability to go one for one and confess to a, a human being and then have penance ascribed in order to take care of those sins. What about all the ones I can't even recount for you? And it's worse than that. The desires and the thoughts and the words and the deeds are all sins of commission. The Bible teaches there are sins of omission. 
the things that I was supposed to desire and supposed to think and supposed to say and do that I failed to do. How am I going to account for all of that? Sin is too numerous to count, and so salvation must be by grace and depart from work. Christ came to provide our righteousness, to fulfill God's promise, supply our need, and lastly, to show that God is righteous. To show that God is righteous. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now we're going to see how this work of Christ showed God to be righteous in just a bit. But the Greek word that's translated in verse 25, sacrifice of atonement, refers to the mercy seat. Some of you may remember that from the first part of your Bible. You have the tabernacle, the temple, you have the inner compartment, the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies, you had the Ark of the Covenant, and there was a cover on the, that, that box, the Ark of the Covenant, and that was called the mercy seat, where sacrificial blood, blood from a sacrificed animal, was sprinkled as a means of, and here's the fancy word, propitiating, that means satisfying, assuaging, the wrath of God against sin. And that's, what, that's how it was done at the mercy seat. And so here it's saying, Christ is our mercy seat. Christ is our propitiation. It is through Christ that the wrath of God that burns against sin is satisfied. Now why does God's wrath have to be satisfied? Because remember back in chapter 1 and verse 18, as Paul begins his explanation of why we need a righteousness from outside of ourselves, he starts it this way, for because the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and wickedness of people. And providing salvation this way vindicates God himself as being righteous. If God failed to do with sin, deal with sin, he would not be just. He would not be righteous. And so the middle of verse 25 says this. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. To show that he is in fact righteous because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And if he left it that way, if sin was not completely dealt with, that would leave God himself as being unjust, as unrighteous. Verse 26, he did it, yes, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God shows through sending his son and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he shows simultaneously his holiness and his, his love. He shows his holiness because sin is completely paid for and completely punished in full. And he shows his love because he doesn't meet it out in us. He's provided a substitute. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son on our behalf and in our place. And as a result of all of that, friends, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that indeed he came to provide this righteousness that we can't achieve through his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the cross, if you've come to believe that and you confess that to him, he changes you from the inside out. He gives you this alien righteousness, righteousness from outside of you, 
declaring you, God the Father does, declares you to be righteous even though you're not. It means your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Many people forget the future piece. But our sins in Christ are forgiven all, past, present, and future. And we have the righteousness of Christ. He sees us as if we have the perfection of Jesus. So you can rightly say this, Jesus died for me, and you can say Jesus lived for me, and both of those are given to you when you come to him. Brothers and sisters, remembering now that that's the reason Jesus came, to save his people from their sins, and that he did all of that to make it possible and gives all of that to us when we come to him, remembering that now we live out of that identity. That's my identity. I am righteous before God even though I struggle with sin. I'm a child of God adopted into his family on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done even though I still fail him regularly. And as a result of that, that should radically alter now the way I live my Christian life. I live it with joy. I live it with expectation. I don't live it in drudgery. I don't live it trying to live up to someone's expectations. But rather, Jesus has met all of the expectations, and God has brought me and you into his family, and he invites us into the joy of living for him in that identity. Here's your take-home truth. At Christmas, we should remember why God came to earth, to obtain salvation for all who believe. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for allowing us to look into your word, be reminded there of the beauty of the good news of the gospel. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, who perfectly obeyed your law, perfectly obeyed you in every respect, and his perfect righteousness is given to us when we believe in him and what he has done for us. And he has paid the penalty for all of our sin, past, present, and future, on the cross, and you accepted that sacrifice because of his perfect obedience. And as a result of accepting that sacrifice, you raised him showing that you approved of the totality of everything that he had done. And Lord, therefore you approve of us because we are Jesus' brothers and sisters, the writer of Hebrews says. Thank you, Lord, that we are in your family and that you deem us to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of, in terms of the righteousness that you have credited to us. We don't deserve it. We don't live it out in our experience as we ought. But Lord, we thank you for that blessed assurance that we are yours and always will be. Help us to celebrate that during this Christmas season. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.